We're in the middle of our current preaching series, which we've entitled Make It Count, which is based on uh, Paul's letter to the Philippian church. We said that Philippians was written by Paul from a prison in Rome to the Philippian congregation, and it's about 10 years since Paul and his colleagues planted this church. We said that the overriding theme of Philippians is joy, which is ironic. Since Paul is imprisoned while writing it, he's facing huge difficulties and hardships, perhaps even death, when he's writing this letter. Paul is modeling for us a strong message as he writes this letter. And the message that he is modeling is this. If we are willing to adopt a make-it-count attitude in our relationship with Jesus, we will experience joy when life does not turn out as we planned. We've been saying that joy is based in believing that God can take the most painful seasons of our lives and bring something good out of them. And so our first week, we said a make-it-count approach to faith creates authentic community. Last week, our second message, we said that a make-it-count approach to faith helps us gain a different perspective. Today, we're going to see that a make-it-account approach to faith calls for unity. Paul is shifting his focus now in the letter away from himself, away from his circumstances and his perspective, and now he's focusing for a little while in on the actual members of the Philippian church. And in doing so, his first focus is on unity. The church of the Holy Sepulchre is located in Jerusalem and is one of Christianity's holiest sites. Christian pilgrims travel from all over the world to see it. If you've been to Israel, you've probably visited there. I know a number of years ago, I had the opportunity of going there. The church is is rather large. It's more of a compound, really, and it claims to contain two of the holiest sites of Christianity. Now, while there's differing views of where certain things took place, uh, you know, the view of those uh, of this, this particular church believe that the property that this church is located on is the site of Golgotha, which is uh, where Jesus was crucified, and also is the site of the garden tomb. Uh, where Jesus was buried and subsequently was resurrected. And so that's the belief that this is what makes this particular church location so special. Now what's interesting is that for centuries, the church has also been the scene of a furious rivalry between different Christian churches. Control of the church itself is actually shared primarily among six different Christian denominations. If you can imagine, one church controlled by six different Christian denominations, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and Armenian Apostolic, and then to a lesser degree, Coptic Orthodox, Syriac Orthodox, and Egyptian Orthodox. Now, rivalry between the six different churches dates all the way back to the aftermath of the Crusades, and to the great schism that took place in the church between Eastern and Western Christianity in the 11th century. Now, I'm not going to give you a church history lesson, but maybe some of you are familiar with that. But two of the groups, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and the Coptic Church of Egypt, have been vying for control of the church's rooftop for years. And on July 30th, 2002, there was an incident on the rooftop of the church that resulted in a brawl between the monks. You can't make this stuff up. And things came to a head when the Egyptian monk 
moved his chair into the shade on the rooftop that was located on the Ethiopian side of the roof. And so you have the Egyptian going into the Ethiopian area. The Ethiopian said the move violated an agreement which defines the ownership of every chapel, every lamp, every stone in the church. And so 11 monks, seven of them Ethiopian, four Egyptian, were hurt in the violence which followed as they were hurling stones and iron bars and chairs at each other. And one of the Egyptian brothers was found unconscious and taken to the hospital. It took the Israeli police to come and restore order on the rooftop of the church. I want to suggest this morning that the only way that the kingdom of God will advance, the only way that the mission of Jesus will be accomplished, the only way that unbelievers will come to Jesus is when there is unity amongst the followers of Jesus. Disunity kills the mission. Disunity destroys the church. Disunity wounds people. Disunity robs any hope of ever reaching unbelievers with the love of Jesus. And so a make-it-count approach to our faith calls for unity among the followers of Jesus. Because without unity, a make-it-count approach to faith cannot thrive. And so today we're going to consider what Paul says about unity. So let's look at Philippians chapter 2, and if you have your Bible, the section we're covering this morning is actually picking up from where we last, left last week, from chapter 1, verse 27, all the way up to the end of verse 2, but we're just going to read two verses together this morning. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So let's take a look at what Paul is saying in this section. First, he talks about conduct, conduct. In the previous section that we looked at, Paul declared that he didn't know what was going to happen to him, whether he was going to live or he was going to die. But he did say that whatever happens to him, their conduct, how they behave, is critically important. And so regardless of the circumstances in their lives, they are responsible individually for their spiritual lives. Therefore, they must conduct their lives in a manner, he says, that is appropriate to the gospel. Now, the word conduct here is a very interesting word. It comes from the idea of citizenship, and whether it's citizenship to a country, but in the time that Paul is writing, people even held citizenship in cities. I'm thinking that's why they call it citizenship. That's a dad joke, but it was pretty good, I thought. Paul is building off of a familiarity in his culture from both Roman and Greek thinking. And it's, it's a thinking that was familiar at this time in history, and he's using it to drive home his point. Citizenship was very important in Philippi because it's a Roman colony, and the people who lived there held Roman citizenship. They lived their lives they, that, in a way that pledged that were pledged to the laws of Rome. In return of being pledged to the laws of Rome, they received the rights, the privileges of being Roman citizens. They claimed to be Romans, even though they didn't actually live in Rome. In Greek culture, the thinking was that individual citizens were encouraged to discover and develop their gifts 
And the goal of doing that was not just so there could be personal benefit in their lives, but a person's gifts were understood to be for the benefit of all of the community of citizens as a whole. And so Paul is taking the citizenship understanding in both Roman and Greek culture to help the Philippians understand that they are citizens of the kingdom of God and what that means. And so he says, as followers of Jesus, they are citizens of heaven with all of the benefits and the privileges, even though they're not presently living there. Therefore, they should live in a way that reflects that they are citizens of heaven and take part in and adhere to the affairs of heaven. In addition, they have individual gifts and abilities. Their responsibility is to strive to develop these gifts for the greater good and benefit of the kingdom of God. Not just for themselves, but beyond themselves. And so in light of this, Paul says to them, You are citizens of heaven. You are citizens of the kingdom of God. So therefore, you need to stand firm. Stand firm is war terminology. It means to stay at your post. A loyal soldier will not leave their post. Standing firm is a term that is used within the context of attack. And so he's saying, even when the battle intensifies, a soldier will never leave their post. And so within the spiritual context, Paul is saying to these believers, never leave your post, never compromise your beliefs, never compromise your lifestyle, never get distracted from your focus. You cannot be a citizen of heaven and live like you are not a citizen of heaven. There must be consistency in how we live and our citizenship. Paul then calls them to contend as one. It means to struggle alongside somebody else. As followers of Jesus, they're not called to stand firm, remain loyal, and stay focused all on their own. They're called to stand firm together. To contend at one is an athletic terminology. It's the idea of a team. A team that's working together towards a common goal, towards victory. There's a common goal, there's a common plan, there's a common vision, and they're all headed in that direction. And Paul tells them the goal they're contending for is the faith of the gospel. They're promoting and they are protecting the message of Jesus Christ. So he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The word afraid here is a reference to a horse that's startled by something unexpected, which results in a loss of control. Paul's trying to help them understand that they need to expect confrontation. They need to expect attack from the enemy. They need to be ready for it, because if they are, the impact on them will be lessened if they are anticipating it. He's not calling them to be pessimists. He's not calling them to be expecting the worst. What he's actually doing is he's calling them to be realist. To be realist. And so what Paul is telling them is this. Fear increases when we feel that we're facing things all by ourselves alone. But there's a confidence that's found in numbers, and so unity helps squash our fear. Unity gives us a greater sense of confidence to face what's intimidating us more than facing it by oneself. And so according according to Paul, citizens of heaven should conduct themselves in a manner that demonstrates how Jesus would have them live. And it's not possible without unity. The second thing Paul addresses is confidence. Facing adversity is usually viewed as a negative part of life. I think we would all agree with that. But Paul is explaining here that the attack of the enemy on the believer can actually become a positive experience. 
As they stand together in unity in the midst of their hardship, there is a confidence that is gained that would not come otherwise. And Paul tells them that when believers stand together united, the attacks of the enemy are futile and the church will continue to prevail. In fact, he says the the inability of attackers to intimidate and destroy, whether it's from within their, their context or from outside, will be a sign, will be proof. Proof of what? That a believer in Jesus who stands in unity will not be destroyed. And so Paul is saying that believers are overcomers. They've been granted courage from God to stand firm in the struggle. Now, on the contrary, those who oppose God, he said, well, they're going to lose. He's foreshadowing their future, final, spiritual destruction. Facing battles, ironically, Paul says, should build them up, not tear them down. Because their very battles are a reminder that they're going to overcome. The fact that they're fighting is a reminder that there will be victory. And so Paul uses the word granted in verse 29. And the word granted means to receive a gift. And he's saying that believers, followers of Jesus, have been given a gift. First of all, they've been given the gift to believe. The reason a relationship with Jesus is even possible is because salvation is a gift. So salvation is a gift, and our opportunity to believe is a gift. But I sure wish he would have stopped there. But he didn't. And then he identifies a second gift that comes from Jesus. The gift of suffering. I don't want that gift. Some of you are thinking, I think I have the gift of suffering. Now this seems unusual. We have no issue receiving the gift of being able to believe in Jesus. The gift of receiving salvation. That's great news. That's why they call it the gospel, the good news. But who wants the gift of suffering? Nobody wants to suffer. Why is suffering a gift? Why would he call it a gift? And he explains why. He says, when you suffer, you suffer for him. And when you suffer for Jesus, God's purposes are accomplished, are achieved. I mean, who better to be writing this than Paul? Who could identify with suffering more than Paul? His entire life, his entire ministry has centered around suffering. And he knows that if that is the case for him, it is also the case for them. Paul is declaring that good things come through suffering. And if good things come from suffering, that will ultimately benefit the kingdom of God and will ultimately instill, uh, you know, benefit the child of God, it will instill a sense of confidence in them as they battle the enemy. Thirdly, Paul addresses some causes. I don't know. I think it's the heating unit in here. I find that, you know, notice you know, some of you that say to me after, you sounded like you had trouble with your voice today. I think it's the lack of moisture in the air. If you guys could start like sweating more, you know, bring humidifiers. Preach a harder message. Yeah. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Causes. Where were we? There we were. Paul addresses the proper conduct of unity and the confidence that comes through unity, but now he outlines what makes unity possible. What contributes to unity? What causes unity to be experienced? It's their relationship with Jesus that demands unity and makes it possible. In chapter 2, verse 1, We look at that verse and we see that it's filled with what we would call if clauses. And these if clauses are not used to try and determine if something is true. 
As we read these verses, if should be actually understood as since, not if. It's a method or a style of writing where there's an assumption that what is said is actually indeed true. And so Paul outlines four of these areas that cause unity to thrive within the context of the body of believers, the church. The first, he says, is encouragement. If there is any encouragement from being in Christ. Now, the word encouragement here means to come alongside to help. It means to give wisdom and share wisdom with another. It means to hold someone accountable for their actions and their behavior. It means to direct someone in the right way. And so Paul is telling them that their relationship with Jesus creates a culture where believers can come alongside each other. They can help each other. They can share wisdom with each other. They can hold each other accountable, and they can direct each other in the right way. And Paul says when this type of culture exists within the church, unity can thrive. The second one is love. He says if there's any comfort from his love. Paul is saying that there is a comfort that is experienced In the love of Jesus. There's a comfort in the love of Jesus. And comfort here means to come close to someone and whisper encouragement in their ear. That is the literal translation of of comfort here. In difficult moments, in moments of failure, when a fellow believer has let God and others down, Jesus comes to them and whispers his love in their ears, not just to some of them or the worthy ones or those who are viewed as the most deserving, but all of them. He loves all of them the same. He whispers the same love in the ears of all of them. And so Paul is telling us that understanding the love of Jesus, experiencing the love of Jesus, should encourage them to live in unity because it's the love of Jesus amongst them that ultimately unites them. Then there's fellowship. He says if there's any fellowship or partnership with the Spirit, Paul reminds them that they have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Fellowship means partnership. The Holy Spirit dwells in them. The Holy Spirit empowers them. The Holy Spirit partners with them in accomplishing the mission of the kingdom of God. And so Paul is teaching them that a true partnership creates and demands unity. And true unity with the Holy Spirit, hear this, True unity or partnership with the Holy Spirit creates true unity and partnership with one another. If unity with one another is absent, then so is the partnership with the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, Paul says compassion. If there is any tenderness and compassion. Tenderness, compassion here means Having a heart where mercy resides. Having a heart where mercy resides. A heart of compassion is a heart that longs to give to others more than they deserve. Now, the Philippian believers were recipients of the mercy of God, demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ. Truth be told, they got much more than they deserved. The mercy of God. And now they are able to demonstrate mercy to others, to one another, because of a greater mercy that's already been demonstrated towards them. And the result is an environment of mercy creates unity. Each one in that community offering more grace to one another than is even deserved. So let's take a look this morning at six quick things that I believe Paul's writing here says to us. First, walk the talk. 
we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And even though the kingdom of God is not revealed in its fullness yet, even now we are experiencing the benefits and the privileges of citizenship in the kingdom of God. And like the Greeks, we need to view our God-given gifts as a benefit to be surrendered to the kingdom of God as a whole, not just for our own benefit. And this way of thinking is not just limited to the church. I know that for years, us pastors have have focused on that. It's like, we need you to do more. We need you to serve. We need you to fill this role, fill this vacancy. You know, use your gifts. I know that. But Paul's thinking here is not just limited to the context of the church. Yes, we use our gifts within the community of faith. We must and we need to, and we need to be faithful to it, each one contributing to the overall work. But the kingdom of God has to be viewed as bigger than what happens inside a church when we meet. The kingdom of God is bigger than this. It's bigger than this. It's using our gifts and living for the kingdom in our workplace. In our neighborhood. In our families. During our social activities. In the places we volunteer. Not just here, but out there as well. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we must live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Folks, we need to come to understand it's not our words that carry the greatest impact for the kingdom of God. It's how we live our lives. It's what others are observing as they watch us. Does what we say we believe get demonstrated in everyday life? Is there consistency between what we believe the Bible says is true and we claimed to have as our own and how we live every moment of the day? Is there consistency? Because as citizens of the kingdom of God, we need to stand firm in the midst of struggles. Stand firm in the midst of painful circumstances and attack when it would be easier to quit and to become overcome and to to grow tired. That's when the true reality of the depth of a relationship with God is exposed. When the hardships come. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we're a team. We're a team. We work together, we stand together, we fight together so we can overcome our fear and find courage in the midst of our circumstances. Unity is critically important if we're going to have a make-it-account approach to faith when facing our battles. As we stand together in unity, there's a confidence we experience that we would never experience otherwise. Secondly, Turn the tables. Citizens of the kingdom of God are overcomers. Citizens of the kingdom of God are overcomers. We've been given courage from God to stand firm in the struggle. Now, ideally, battles against us should build us up, not tear us down. Because as Paul said, battles remind us that we will overcome, that God is with us. We, we sang about it this morning, about the God of angel armies always by our side, working in us, through us, around us, and often despite us. Paul reminds us that good things come through our suffering. And if good things come from suffering that ultimately benefits the kingdom, then suffering can be viewed as a gift. Now, we sometimes see suffering as, well, that's, I guess God's not pleased with me. Or, I guess I failed somewhere along the way. I'm getting what I deserve. Or most common, probably, this is an intrusion. I don't need this right now. If we desire to grow in God, if we desire to experience the victory of God in our lives, we need to not only expect suffering as a part of normal life, but to view it as beneficial. 
And if we can begin to see the value of difficulties in our lives, if we can begin to understand that God takes these painful moments and brings something beautiful out of them, then we'll be able to face our struggles with a greater confidence than ever before. It's important that we stand together in unity instead of facing our battles on our own. Unity is critically important if we're going to have a make it account approach to faith in our battles. Third, authentic relationships. Encouragement is a part of our relationship with Jesus. But encouragement is more than speaking kind words or uplifting words to someone. Now, that being said, let me say, I believe that we need more kind and uplifting words deliberately spoken to each other. Do you agree with that? Not, even in, not just in the church, but in the world as a whole. We need to be a kinder world, a kinder culture. People need to hear, you know, we have all these wonderful things, but the things we tend to focus on are the things we don't like. But we need to more kind and uplifting words spoken to each other. You need those words. I need those words. It's just the way we're wired. But as important as kind and uplifting words are, encouragement is more than kind and uplifting words. It creates a natural response to come alongside people, not just with our words, but offer practical help for them to provide godly wisdom through the working of the Spirit in our lives, to hold each other accountable. This type of encouragement that Paul is talking about destroys superficial relationships. And if anything in the church needs to be destroyed, is superficial relationships. Superficial relationships need to die. And we need to have a funeral and never look back. This type of encouragement destroys superficial relationships and creates and promotes authentic relationships. Now, being held accountable is not often welcomed. I don't know about you, but I don't anticipate it every day with excitement that someone's going to walk into my life and hold me accountable. Buy me a coffee, give me nice words, yeah, but hold me accountable? Yeah, I don't know. It's not often welcomed. It's often not appreciated. We don't often view it as, as positive, and we become, you know, we begin to defend ourselves and We can't accept accountability sometimes. But we need to understand that if you're going to be in a relationship with Jesus, it means that you're going to be in a relationship with other followers of Jesus, and it means that Jesus expects us to keep one another accountable. So if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you can't opt out of that one. Like, you just can't. Jesus is not calling us to superficial relationships. He's calling us to authentic and real relationships where we see accountability as a demonstration of love, of a demonstration of concern and value. You're on the wrong road. You're heading to hell. You're in a disaster moment, and I love you enough to not sweep it under the rug and let it go. I love you enough to walk into your life and say, man, you got to get it together. I don't know if you can see this in your life, but this this is an issue. Or what you just did is inappropriate. That we love people enough. Sometimes we think that we, you know, if we love people, we just, you know, we don't want to be too hard on them. We want to no, if you love people, you you are hard on them. I'm hardest on my kids. Why? Because I love them the most. Yeah, even more than you. I do, and I'm hard on them because they matter. I'm concerned. I value. That's how we have to value Christian relationship. Not threatening, not judgmental or accusatory. When we hold people accountable, we're helping them. It's only truth, the Bible says, that will set us free. I always say families who don't know what to do, do nothing. That's what we do. We sweep it under the rug. We pretend it's not there. No, we hold each other accountable. Your behavior is not appropriate. And I'm going to help you find your way. Because your relationship with Jesus means more to me than what makes me feel uncomfortable. So 
only the truth that will set us free. Fourthly, whispers. It's important that we understand and accept the fact that Jesus loves us all the same. Now, when we say that, we're like, yeah, that's true. Jesus loves us all the same. (laughs) It's easy to say, isn't it? Folks, it's in the stillness that he draws us near. And we hear him whisper his love for us. It's in the stillness and the quiet that he draws us near. And we can hear him whisper his love for others in our ears. This is what I believe. I believe that one of the greatest struggles in the church today is loving everyone the same. I think that's why Jesus addressed this issue as his final conversation with his disciples because he knew that this would be, always be the hardest one, loving people. And I'm not talking about people inside the church only. I'm talking about inside and outside. Sometimes we can get to the point that we're okay with the people inside, but God help us if we start loving the retrobates on the outside. The truth is often we are so busy doing church work we're so vocal in our opinions. We're so opinionated. We're so, we're so defensive of what we say we believe. We're so loud that we can't hear the whisper of Jesus. Nor can we understand his love for everyone. Truth is, I believe the church and believers have lost the art of listening, of quiet, of silence, of hearing the voice of God. And sometimes as Pentecostals, we're the worst. Our worship is loud. Don't get started, I know. I know, I heard you 12 times ago. Our worship's loud. Our prayers are loud. In fact, when our prayers are loud, they're more spiritual. The humble little sister mumbles a few words and we're not moved. But when brother so-and-so comes and he starts spitting and yelling and quoting all these things, we're like, oh, praise God. Right? Louder is more spiritual. Come on, let's be honest. I've been in this for 52 years. I know what I'm talking about. Our preaching is loud. It's loud. Who wants to sit there and have someone bore you to say, we don't want that. I had a friend who a lady came and said, can I get a copy of your sermon on Sunday, Pastor? And she's, he said, well, what, 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 ser- what sermon are you talking about? She goes, I don't remember the sermon, but you shouted a lot and ran around the church. Because that was anointed. Because he yelled. The louder the preaching. The louder the preaching, the more spiritual we think it is sometimes. If it gets quiet, we get uncomfortable. And then we think we need to fill it. I mean, how many times are we in a little prayer group and people are firing and all of a sudden someone stops praying and we're there and it's awkward. Oh my goodness, there's silence. I had to fill this with a prayer. Or the worship leader is leading And they just want to pause and wait in silence for a minute. And all of a sudden we get really uncomfortable and there's got to be amens or praise the Lord's. Not because we feel prompted to say it. We just got to fill the space. I've even seen people operate in the gifts in those moments. They can't stand the silence. They don't know what to do with it. To hear the whisper of Jesus, we need to discipline ourselves to silence. And then we'll become aware of his love for us. And his love for others. Folks, the truth is we talk about his love, but our actions prove that we don't really understand it. Jennifer and I are reading a book right now. We do that, by the way. She does the reading, I do the listening. It breaks down when my mind drifts for a minute and she stops and asks me what I thought of that last sentence. (laughs) And I just got to make something up. Just answer Jesus. That's the answer to everything. But we're reading a book by Bob Goff, and he made a statement as we were reading it this weekend. I gotta tell you, I just thought, yeah, that's me. We spend our time avoiding, this is what he said, we spend our time avoiding the very people Jesus pursued. Wow. Wow. That's a powerful sentence. 
As I came into 2019 and began to make resolutions, I should have made health resolutions. I know that, but I know I just won't keep them. So I just decided, you know what? I could die thin or I can die happy. So let's just let it play out. I mean, in my culture, if you're sad, come have something to eat. Are you happy? Come in and have something to eat. You're not hungry? Come in and have something to eat. That's just the way we are. But my prayer for 2019, sincerely, is that God would teach me more about his love so I can love mothers more. That's my conviction for my life. And I'm finding, confession, the more I'm learning about his love and I'm loving the people that before I may have avoided, the more criticized I am by spiritual people who feel that I shouldn't love those people that way. That's my confession. I believe the truth is that many followers of Jesus are held back in their love for others because they fear that loving them will be interpreted as supporting their lifestyles. Want to be silent and think about that for a while? I can love you and not agree with you. I can love you and hate everything you do every minute of the day. But in the church, there's a culture that has swept through that says to love, to love is to condone. Really? Not the Jesus I read about. I've determined that I'm going to love them anyway. And people can think what they want and they can do what they want. Because at the end of the day, I just want to love like Jesus. And interpret it as you will. Folks, when we silence ourselves enough to hear the whisper of Jesus, we love everyone the same. When you hear his heartbeat, you know? Do you remember doing that as a kid? Lying on your mom's chest or your dad's chest and you could hear their heartbeat in the quiet, in the silence. When, when, when we hear his heartbeat, we love everyone the same. And when we love everyone the same, then there'll be unity. And where there is unity, a make it count approach to faith can thrive. Partnerships. I'll be done soon. Paul's use of the term fellowship is, means partnership with the Holy Spirit. I believe sometimes as believers, we have an unbalanced focus in terms of the Spirit's work. And I think, let's be honest, I think sometimes we really just don't really know what to do with the Holy Spirit. God as Father, I can relate to that. Jesus as the Son, I can relate to that. But how do I relate to the Holy Spirit? How do I relate to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Oftentimes I've heard people in church contacts talking about it. When the Spirit moves, it. The Holy Spirit is not it. The Holy Spirit is He, a person, the third person of the Trinity. Or if you're a big fan of the shack, it's a she. <laughs> we just use those words randomly. They're neither, but you know what I'm saying. Oh, gee, some of you are going to revolt now. Why did I say that? Sometimes we emphasize the Holy Spirit's work in salvation and sanctification, which is changing us into the image of Jesus, while at the same time neglecting the emphasis of the Holy Spirit's work in empowering us for mission. Sometimes we, we emphasize the Holy Spirit's empowering for mission over his work in salvation and sanctification. As Pentecostals, we, we place a high value on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our doctrine, and sometimes we tend to emphasize the sign of spirit baptism, tongues, over what spirit baptism makes possible. The sign has become more important than the act. And we've lost sight of the mission, but we're arguing over tongues. You can send the copy to the district office, though. They'll help me with my transition. Sometimes we emphasize a heightened sense of emotion in worship 
over the Holy Spirit and bringing a deep-seated change in our lives. Sometimes we give priority to the verbal gifts of the Spirit over the development of the fruit of the Spirit. Because it's easier to relay a message than it is to be convicted and shaped by the Spirit. It is. And so my point is this. We need a proper perspective on our partnership with the Holy Spirit in every regard. He is the one who comes and dwells in us at salvation and makes the salvation of Jesus possible in our lives. He's the one who works in us to change us into the image of Jesus. He's the one who empowers us so we can carry out this overwhelming mission that we've been called into. The sign, tongues, can be more important than the empowering of what it represents. That can't keep happening. Worshiping God and living for Jesus has an emotional reality. People say, I don't like emotionalism in my spirituality. You can't have spirituality without emotion. It's a part of you. It has an emotional reality to it. But we can't enjoy the emotion and be left unchanged. We need the gifts of the Spirit, but not without the fruit. Because if we do, Paul says, you know what that sounds like to God? It's like someone standing at a drum set with, with a stick and they keep banging the cymbals. It's annoying to God. He can't stand it. When the gifts are more important than the fruit. He doesn't want to hear our words, people. He wants to have access to our character. The Holy Spirit creates unity. Ephesians 4.3, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Partnership with the Holy Spirit brings unity, and unity creates an atmosphere where a make-it-account approach to faith can thrive. And with this I close. Mercy. God have mercy. I know, six points. Culture tells us to put ourselves first. Look out for ourselves. What you think is what matters most. Your opinions, that's all that matters. What you prefer, that's the most important. And when these values find their way into the church, and let me tell you, they frequently do, it kills unity. Within the community of faith, it's not just about me. It's not just about what I want. It's not just about what I prefer. It's not about my agenda. We said this morning there's nominations. I've known people who ran for church boards because they have an agenda that they think they can push at the church board level that they can't get anywhere with otherwise. It's not about your agenda. It's not about my ideas. Instead of thinking only of ourselves, our rights, and our preferences, we need to have hearts where mercy resides where we're willing to give to others more than they deserve. It's not about what I deserve, what I want, and what I prefer. It's giving more than they deserve. It's not about winning an argument. Sometimes in Christianity, we're more concerned about winning the argument. And sometimes we're the only one arguing. Don't you hate that? When you want to argue with your spouse, you're ready. Gloves are off. And she won't fight back. Like, what's wrong with that? Sometimes that's what we're doing as a church. We're, we're in an argument with ourselves. No one's listening. Being right is the most important. Proving our position, that's what matters most. It's not about those things. It's about giving more mercy than a person deserves. That's the message of the cross. Unity thrives in an environment where people fail. Can't have mercy if you're not failing. You got to fail. You got to be in a room full of failures. I am so happy I get to pastor this group of failures. You're pastored by a failure, and we're all failures. That's what makes mercy so wonderful. Unity thrives in an environment where people fail, but then they repent and they're shown mercy they don't deserve. Most people want to skip the second one. If confronted, they'll admit to failure. But they want the mercy without the repentance. I'm sorry to tell you, 
It doesn't work that way. God's mercy is beyond what we can imagine. The mercy we show is beyond. But when we fail, if we are not willing to repent, God's mercy is not effective. Repentance has to be there. And repentance is acknowledging sin and changing and walking in a different direction. And then you see more mercy than you ever deserved. See, where there's unity, where there's mercy, a make-it-count approach to faith can thrive. Worship team, would you come back? A make-it-count approach to our faith calls for unity amongst believers. Without unity, we just won't thrive. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we need to live like we are citizens of the kingdom of God, living what we say we believe, and we can have confidence when we stand together in suffering, because suffering together is a gift from God, because it's an opportunity for God to bring something miraculous and victorious in our lives. And so we need to embrace all in our relationship with Jesus, as uncomfortable as that might be, because doing that creates unity where unity can't exist. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm inviting the prayer team to come. And Tyler is going to lead us, and I just encourage you to, even in the silence of your moment, in fact, let's do something different. Let's play music but not sing. Let's make it uncomfortable. Let's make it easier for us to hear what we need to hear rather than what's being bombarded. Let's just play the music. I'm sorry, guys. I know you're committed. You came early. That's what we're going to do. You can worship. You can come for prayer. You can fall on your face. You can, you can just ask God to, to touch your life. But in these next few moments, would you invite the whisper of Jesus to be heard clearly in your ear? God, I'm stripping away the silence. I just want to hear your voice. I want to hear your love. I want to hear your embrace. I just want to hear you. We do that this morning.